This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Nathan Ruser. He's a researcher and he's going to be telling us about his work looking into the brutal oppression from the Chinese government against the Uyghur people in Xinjiang. The Chinese government has been destroying their mosques, brutally arresting them, putting them into so-called re-education camps and basically trying to destroy any identity that they had. Nathan's going to tell us all about that, including the history, the militant groups and how this all came to be. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please go to patreon.com slash popularfront to support us or buy the magazine, which is out soon at popularfront.shop. Firstly, we should really go to who are the Uyghurs, you know what I mean? I think that's probably the best place to start. We'll get into everything China has done to them, but a lot of people are completely unaware of this whole situation, even down to who are the Uyghurs, never heard of them. So maybe you can explain that first of all. Yeah, so the Uyghurs are basically this... um they're a Turkic, they're a Turkic ethnic minority in Western China, and so they've sort of been living there for as long as anyone can really remember. In sort of, I think it was nine hundred AD, Islam came through, and sort of the whole, the whole, the vast majority of them are now Muslims. The term Uyghur itself is a bit interesting, though, because it like wasn't really widely used until the nineteen thirties. So there was no real term for what they were before then. Before that, like, they had names for themselves, and the in the community they were sometimes calling themselves Uyghur, but, like, whenever you looked at an outsider's account, they'd be called, um, Uzbek or Kajik, or just another different Central Asian minority. So Uyghur itself is sort of this collection of, I guess, ethnic people and ethnic identities that is, that is in Western China especially, yeah. Right, so so the Uyghurs are this ethnic group living, you know, within what is now China. How did they end up kind of coming to blows with the Chinese government? How did they end up in Xinjiang as well? Because this isn't new, right? This has this has been going on for a while. Yeah, so they used to have sort of their kingdoms and their territory, but they were always, to some extent, I guess, more peripheral to China than part of China. But because they were sort of the first stop on the Silk Road once you left China, so the Great Wall ends a few hundred kilometres short of Xinjiang. So Xinjiang was sort of the first stop on that Silk Road. So they'd for sort of, for centuries and almost for millennia, there'd been on and off contact between Uyghur people and China. And I, I guess a lot of this history is contested because if you look at Chinese officials' history, there's a very different story that sort of said, Uyghur has been a part, Xinjiang has been a part of China for millennia, but in reality they were sort of on the periphery, they weren't part of it, but they were, in a way before, before the modern state existed, China sort of viewed itself as the middle kingdom, and that's where the name comes from, and everything on its periphery was, to mo- was everything on its periphery was sort of examined in relation to its proximity to China, so that's why sort of Korea has had this history of being Chinese territory on and off. And Xinjiang was on the other side of China, and it's further away from the power, further away from everything. But yeah, it's sort of always had relationships with China. 
generally not very extensive ones, but after the Qing Empire took over in the 1600s, they started pushing west in, in a proper sense. So in the 1750s, they led a huge military invasion of Xinjiang, or of that part of, that part of I think at the time it was known as Turkestan. Um, but they did a huge military sort of expedition in there and set up a wide network of military posts. So basically every city had its own Qing dynasty um, governor and a pretty sizable military garrison. But it wasn't until the late 1800s when it sort of formally became a province of China. So prior to that, that had a the Qing dynasty had a big presence in there. Every city had its own Chinese official that was in charge of it, but they didn't really get into the weeds much with administering. It was sort of just, it was kind of just trying to get tax from them. But yeah, in the 1800s, that then changed and the control got a lot firmer. So that was in response to a number of insurrections and a number of revolts against the Qing um, military occupation. And yeah, so in the 18, I think it was 1885, they formally, I guess, annexed, if, which is, is the closest modern equivalent, but they like formally declared Xinjiang a province of China. Right. So when did, uh, you know, CCP China first start kind of clashing with Xinjiang? Was, was that like as just because of this kind of uh, clash through history or was this something new? Well... For a lot of for a lot of Xinjiang's history, it was sort of the area between Russia and China more than it was its own its own thing, at least from the perspective of Beijing. So you sort of had parts of the territory being sliced off into going under Russian control for periods, Soviet yeah Russian control for periods, and you had like a strong Russian presence in each part. And that when the Qing Empire sort of dissolved in the early 1900s. It was Russia that sort of filled that vacuum and they sort of sponsored a lot of warlords that were the ones that controlled the kingdom, well, that controlled the area. And there was even two brief stints where it got formal independence from China, the first and the second East Turkestan republics. Um, but following the Chinese civil, the civil war after World War II, so in, I think it was 1949, Xinjiang pretty immediately and pretty completely came under control of the Communist Party of China. And that's sort of when a lot of it started going downhill. So, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, when Mao first started, he had a very firm hand. He had a very, um, he didn't lead, he didn't lead China into prosperity right away. And Xinjiang was a big casualty in that, where the culture of Xinjiang was sort of seen as opposing to Mao's ideology. So that's when it started to get more actively suppressed. Um, during the Cultural Revolution, that sort of came to a peak almost as, almost as destructive as we're at right now, where a lot of mosques were demolished, a lot of... Um, there was just this widespread social upheaval that saw Uyghur identity as a, in conflict with the Maoist identity. So that's when it, so it's sort of been ebbing and flowing since then as far as how much pressure and how coercive the Chinese state has been in Xinjiang. But so cultural revolution, extremely coercive, then it 
sort of became a bit freer for a couple of decades until the 1990s, roughly, and that's when it started to shore up a lot of a lot of coercive government and coercive control. Right, and was Mao specifically against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang because they were Muslim and he was just, you know, he didn't want the, the religion, especially, like, kind of a strong religion there? Or was it something else? Was he specifically against, like, the Uyghurs? I mean, I think it's kind of just Mao's ideology wasn't great for religion full stop. It sort of saw religion and it saw faith as a challenge to its own identity. So there was a lot of persecution against them. I don't think because they were Muslim, but because they sort of had faith and they had an identity that they could rely on that was separate to Mao's. Um, Though I don't know if he took a particularly sort of... (laughs) I don't think he... I don't know if he... I don't know exactly how much attention he paid personally to Xinjiang and how much it was just his policy sort of trickling down throughout the bureaucratic system. Yeah. Um, so I, I started doing a little bit of research on Xinjiang probably six years ago. And I remember at the time reading about it and it wasn't like big in the news at the time or anything and the persecution wasn't as widespread. But I remember thinking like it feels to me as if China was trying to create almost like terrorism in a box so you know like us did democracy in a box for me i felt like they were trying to provoke some kind of terrorism in a box because the persecution of the area where people would generally chill do you know what i mean they weren't doing attacks suddenly after certain things that the chinese government were doing there was a group right was it the jitem or jtim i forget there was like a militant group maybe you can talk about how that all kind of came to be i think it was the east turkestan islamic party that's it yeah yeah Yeah, so in the 1990s when China started that a lot more repressive hand and a lot more coercive control on the the people, on the Uyghurs and on Xinjiang more generally, there started sort of popping up these areas of resistance. So in a city called Hulja, there was a big, um, there was a big uprising in 1997 against the Chinese state. And in fact, if you look at a lot of the Uyghur diaspora, a lot of them fled following that um, uprising. But, yeah, so there's always been these on-and-off bits of communal communal conflict, and I think the most jarring example of that was the 2009 riots in Urumqi, where I think it was almost 200 people died, and I can't remember the breakup between Uyghur and Han, but basically that was the result of um, the Chinese government sort of marginalising further and further the Uyghur people in the capital city of Urumqi and sort of ghettoizing and segregating them away from Han migrants that they were bringing in. Um, so that sort of, yeah, kicked off into quite a big communal riots that lasted a few weeks before the army came in and shut it all the hell down. Um, but yes, for, after 2001 with that whole sort of global war on terrorism stuff coming from the US... I think it was sort of seen as a way that China could generally make these outbreaks of violence and anger against the state and its institutions into something that it could present as an existential threat in the same way that the US was sort of talking about terrorism on such a different level to organise violence and other sort of other sort of um, identity-based violent movements that that same thing sort of happened in china where they sort of borrowed the rhetoric from the u.s in the threat of terror and in the 
sort of scale of terror, dragging in all these just explosions, all these organic explosions of violence into a, into terrorism. So the East Turkestan Islamic Party was um, definitely. I think back then it was the East Turkestan Islamic Movement. It was yeah. It was. Um, I mean, it was an organization that's for sure, and there were definitely episodes of terror. But I think in most cases that um, terrorism wasn't brought out in the name of sort of moving society towards something. It was just an anger at that repression. So, for example, 2014, which was six years ago, when Xinjiang violence sort of spread to other parts of China, there was a big knife attack in a train station in Kunming in Yunnan. And by most accounts, the perpetrators of that were people that were just trying to flee. And there's a lot of sort of contested history around that. But by most cases I've seen, the people that committed that violence were trying to flee from China. And I think, I mean, I I can't remember, I I was in high school back then, so I can't remember it too well. But I think they then just took out that anger at being stopped on the train station. And I think... In China, you often you often hear accounts of that sort of random misanthropic violence. So I think it was even a couple of weeks ago in um, a kindergarten school, someone came in and just randomly stabbed a bunch of kindergartners and teachers, and I think four or five people were killed. I can't remember where in China that was, but that those sort of outbreaks of just general misanthropic violence come up a fair bit, actually. But the fact that this is a when it's sort of an ethnic minority that's perpetrating it, then it was brought into this much larger frame of Islamic terrorism and it goes from sort of outbursts of random violence into a existential threat to the Chinese state, or at least its, China- its rule in Xinjiang. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, it's fair to say, like, yes, there is violence, but I think let's talk about then the oppression that people in Xinjiang have felt. What is the Chinese government actually doing to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang? Well, again, that's sort of gone through phases. So back in 2014, it was pretty significant. There was um, huge amounts of sort of just general control and just a very authoritative state that didn't, authoritative state that didn't allow for any freedom of expression or freedom of movement, and in many cases, freedom of religion and culture in Xinjiang. But since 2017, that's sort of ramped up to a level that's almost that's almost globally unprecedented with a complete surveillance and prison state. And I'd go as far to say that if you're Uyghur in Xinjiang since 2017, there's absolutely no such thing as free will, because the application of the the application of the justice system is so random and so petty in a way that that anyone that's Uyghur could be accused of doing anything if they got on the wrong side of anyone. So anything that any Uyghur person does now has to be sort of projected through that sphere of what would the government think about what I'm about to do and if they don't like it then you can't do it. Wow, so it's like the the oppression has got to the point where people are just self-censoring just to not get on the wrong side of whatever might come. I mean, people are self-censoring in the rest of China as well. It's not just true, Xinjiang, true. but it's become sort of 
so bad in Xinjiang. I mean, the state reaches literally into everyone's into everyone's bedrooms. They have um, party cadres that go around into house by house, do interviews once a week, record all the details, make sure there's not a Quran on the bookshelf, make sure there's a picture of she in their living room, etc., etc. And that's happening to every single household in Xinjiang. And I think more what I was trying to say with that lack of free will or consent even in Xinjiang is that I often think about that in the forced labor sense of the word. So I've done a lot, we've done a lot of work looking at forced labor in Xinjiang, and that's a major issue with probably millions of people being in what would be considered forced labor now. Um, but even those that sort of seem to have had the right to choose their jobs that that right doesn't exist because if you refuse a job posting, then you get sent to one of the detention camps. And there's networks of over 300 camps in Xinjiang that just solely exist to arbitrarily detain and incarcerate people for the for the ordinary for the ordinary expression of identity or faith or culture. Well, yeah, let, let's talk about these camps. Some people are calling them. Um concentration camps i think by the kind of definition of what that is i don't think that's entirely inaccurate i mean you tell me if you think that's wrong and then you get like the kind of lunatic uh tanky hardcore communist fringe that are like no they're just they're just re-education camps which in itself is fucking horrible um what are they exactly and when did they kind of come about in many ways probably the best way to refer to them would be internment camps Concentration camps probably like definitionally isn't wrong, but it just brings up um, it brings up memories of the death camps in Nazi Germany, which are on a different scale. So I generally call them true, sort of internment true. camps. But um, in a way, what we refer to now as those camps have sprung up since twenty seventeen. There's always been a huge issue of if you do anything against the state and your Uyghur, you'll be sent to prison for seven or fourteen or twenty one years. And that's been happening since 2000, at least. But yeah, what's sprung up since 2017 is this huge network of internment camps that... And so in some cases, they are a re-education camp in the most perverse sense of the word, in that they are designed to sort of replace the thoughts. I think that's the word, I think that's the phrasing that they use in China, replace the thoughts of these people with something that's more congruent with the with what the government in Beijing would like. Um, so there are certainly a good number of the camps that have a sort of rehabilitatory, at least in the Chinese sense of the word, role, where they bring people in for two years or five years and teach the Mandarin in a very forced way and sort of try to, I mean, I think brainwashing is a fair word, making them recite recite Xi Jinping's speeches word by word until they've learnt them and sort of just try to force out all their previous identity um, and then release them generally into streams of forced or coerced labour. But then there's also the camps which appear to be solely designed to remove people from society. And so that's a lot of what the prisons are, but beyond the prisons there's probably about a hundred camps at least that, um, yeah, they don't look like they have any role in rehabilitation. They basically look like they're just meant to put people in it without trial, without any process. 
and keep them there forever away from society. Wow. Um, and how do we know this? Because China is obviously, you know, it's there is no one with their right mind can argue it's not an opinion. China is a totalitarian state. And obviously they guard any information coming in and out very, very carefully, especially in Xinjiang, as we know. How do we know what's actually going on at these uh, internment camps? So this all started in 2017, but it wasn't really until 2018 that the, that the knowledge of what was happening started to diffuse into the rest of the world. So it started with family members. So the Uyghur diaspora overseas, there's, I think, 3,000 in Australia, probably a lot more in Europe, and the largest number in Turkey. They all started realising that their relatives were being disappeared. And they didn't know why, they didn't know what, where they were going, they didn't know anything. They just knew that they used to be able to talk to their relatives in China. And now a lot of them have dis have gone. And when they sort of asked questions about them, they were there was implications that they'd been disappeared. So that's when it first started coming out. Um, and then following that, people sort of started paying more attention and looking for them. So a lot of it was looking at satellite imagery. A lot of it was trawling through um, construction tenders in China. So sort of... When the government wants something to be built, they'll put out a construction tender and local companies can bid on who gets to construct it. And sometimes you'd see basically in a bit more innuendo, but they'd say, we're trying to construct an internment camp. We need this and this and this. Can your company do it? So that was one of the ways that people started sort of finding out in conjunction with the satellite imagery. So you'd tie them both together and then you'd sort of start to get a clearer and clearer idea of what these new structures that were appear what these new facilities that were popping up all through Xinjiang actually were doing Jesus um I mean that is this is where like your line of work really is so important I think like this kind of studying the satellite imagery and stuff like this is so essential I think for looking into these kind of countries where you can't really be on the ground Do you know what I mean yeah exactly and I mean it's sort of impossible to hide from the satellites in a way like yeah you can disguise what you're doing, you can try to make it ambiguous, and there's stuff that there's still really serious rights violations that go on on a scale that you can't see from space. But when you're sort of trying to look up, lock up over a million people, you can't hide that from the satellites. And I remember once I was in a meeting with a Chinese, um, he was kind of a diplomat, he was kind of a university professor, and we were we got to talking about Xinjiang and it was quite... <laughs> It wasn't the friendliest chat, and in, e in essence he was saying they don't exist. So I got up my phone, pulled open Google Earth, scrolled into, a one, scrolled into one of the camps and showed him, and he said, you can't trust this because who owns the satellites? America owns the satellites. Right. So, <laughs> what is it? Like, Minecraft? Yeah, it sort of pushes... The fact of the satellites sort of push people that would... Try, try their best to defend it into a position that's absolutely unbelievable. You can argue back and forth about all sorts of stuff, but once you have someone showing you a satellite photo and someone saying, oh, that's fake, America owns a satellite, so you can't trust any. And I also, I also showed him um, Chinese satellites that showed them, which was a bit more awkward. <laughs> what did he say to that? He didn't really, he didn't really respond to it. It was, it was sort of at the ed tail end of the conversation because I had to find the satellite imagery. 
Well, that is the that is the, what's great about it because, like you said, it breaks down the argument. So he's he's basically gone from they're not there to the Americans put them on the satellite to ignoring the Chinese satellite. Do you know what I mean? It's really essential in, in that <laughs> it's, sense. It's absolutely unbelievable. And that's sort of why you've kind of seen China's narrative towards them shift. So for years, they for until sort of the end of 2018, they were just blanket, these don't exist. Anyone that says they exist are lying. The thousands of Uyghurs that have talked about their family being disappeared into camps that you can find on Google Earth, they're all lying. And eventually, I guess the weight of that evidence became untenable and they sort of shifted towards that, this is for their own good, this is to re-educate them, this is to rehabilitate them into society, this is to teach them skills that they will need in the modern China. So in many cases, you sort of saw state propaganda go into them and show show Uyghurs being trained in Mandarin, being taught how to being taught how to make beds and stuff. And that was their justification for it once it got to the point that once it got to the point of arguing that um they didn't exist was completely unbelievable. But then in many cases it's you talk to a Uyghur and he's like, My my auntie was a high school t- math teacher. Why does she need to learn how to make beds? Yeah, exactly. Um I've I've been seeing some stuff as well about uh, Chinese uh, authorities even like marrying off Uyghur women to like Chinese men. You know what I mean? Is is there any truth to that? I've I've seen some bits. Um. Yes, that is happening, and I don't think it's so much of a, I don't think it's so much of a policy of trying to get trying to forcibly marry off Uyghur women into Han families. It's more just. In the rest of China, there's a lot of racism against Uyghur people. They're sort of seen as backwards, they're seen as people that need saving, but they're also seen as quite exotically beautiful in a gross way. Right, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, in that sort of fetishization that's really pretty, pretty disgusting to hear when you hear a lot of Han people talking about it. Because they are, they do sort of look half half European, half, half Asian. Um... So I think in a lot of cases what you what you see is people going to Xinjiang on the knowledge of this is where there are beautiful women and sometimes maybe not just for the pur- that purpose but then in turn sort of finding someone that they like and because yeah because consent doesn't exist in society anymore if 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 a Han person tells on you to the local government officials, you're going into a camp. There's no no questions asked. There's no process. They trust a Han person to dob on a Uyghur person. Um, so then it just has sort of built this society where there's this minority that's fetishized and exoticized and that have no free will to say no. <laughs> and so you basically just, yeah, you have... I, I, I can't remember the statistics. I'll have a look for it. But many hundreds of thousands of Uyghur women being married into Han families without any real say in the issue. That is unbelievably fucked up. Um, Another thing that's fucked up, something that really caught my attention when looking at your work, was the fact that they, the Chinese government, have like destroyed centuries-old mosques, and you were finding them on the satellite images, I believe. Um, Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so we actually have a big project coming out in the next few months that sort of starts, that looks at that looks at hundreds of cultural sites, and uh, especially um, graves and mosques, and sort of tries to quantify how many of them have been destroyed or damaged. And it's not happening to every mosque in Xinjiang, but there's certainly a huge effort that's made to sort of eliminate as much of this history and this culture as possible. So in some cases, for example, there's a, in a city called Hotan, there's a famous cemetery that sort of dates back to, I think, the 1400s, and people have just sort of been burying in layers, burying people in layers and layers on top of each other in that cemetery for 600 years now. And last year, China went in with bulldozers and excavated it all to a depth of at least 5, 10 metres. And on top of it, they're building a car park. So you see that happening time and time again in certain certain areas that have cemeteries that have just been wiped off the map. But even when that's not the case, you'll often see that the prayer hall that's attached to the cemetery has been demolished. And you can't tell from the satellite bit. I think it's safe to assume that you can no longer visit those cemeteries. Or they've demolished mosques entirely. Or they've relocated the graves, which is another tricky thing. They'll often say that we're not demolishing the cemetery, we're relocating the graves into a different, more up-to-date cemetery, which itself is a fucked-up thing that nowhere else in the world would ever do. But by all accounts, sort of families are given three days' notice to find the exact rem- the exact location of their relatives that have be- been buried. And Uyghur, Uyghur cemeteries don't sort of... They're not... They don't look at all like Arlington Cemetery. They don't have sort of headstones with a single plot. They're kind of a bit more organic and a bit more messy than that. So they were, I think they're generally given like three days to find the official record of their death, to find the exact plot where they were developed, buried, and then for that... And then that needs to happen before anyone can be relocated. And in, in effect, that basically just means no one can can relocate their their families and they end up just yeah demolishing or at least exhuming and who know doing who knows what with the remains so they just tarmac basically like an ancient burial site and just like off you go yeah and it it, it kind of goes beyond that i remember i was looking through <laughs> street view imagery cuz parts of xinjiang have street view imagery and i found a tea shop that sort of had a little Islamic crescent on the top of it, and it had a little dome outside. And then you check the recent satellite, that whole shop's been demolished because it had that Islamic architecture. Because the tea shop looked a little bit like a mosque. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. You sort of see... You see... Um, you'll go through and you'll see what used to be like a shopping centre, but it was sort of a Uyghur-style, Islamically-themed shopping centre with all the big domes on it. And they've just lopped all the domes off, and now, now there's absolutely no sign of that architecture. And I guess it's important to say that it's not every mosque, but there is certainly a concerted effort to destroy a lot of that culture and to make what remains inaccessible to 
people. What is what is the CCP scared of exactly? I understand that no government, no people, nobody anywhere wants brutal jihadism anywhere near them if they're, you know, sound of mind. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about tea shops that slightly look like a mosque that are getting flattened. What exactly is it, do you think, that they're so thin-skinned about when it comes to the Uyghurs? I mean, you've seen it throughout the rest of China as sort of Xi's managed to establish his power more and more strongly. He's also become more thin-skinned and has become, yeah, a lot more almost paranoid about threats to his power. And that's that's throughout all of China, not just Xinjiang. But in Xinjiang, there's this... In Xinjiang, if you're Uyghur, there's nothing to fall back on, I guess. So... <laughs> Anyone else in anyone else in China, you can sort of privately have your faith, you can privately have your opinions, as long as you don't publicly say anything bad. You can you can keep those opinions and you can keep that faith private. And the fact that you're sort of Han, the fact that you're Chinese, gives you something to fall back on because the CCP's power has become so so synonymous with this sort of Han Chinese chauvinism where they think they're the best people, where they think Han people are the best people in the world. And, yeah, so when you're Uyghur, you don't have that, I think in many ways, you don't have that to fall back on. So you can't, you can't, you can't privately practice, you can't privately practice your faith, but then you don't have your, your, your ethnicity is seen as a threat. And it kind of goes back to that, that whole thing that we talked about with Mao at the start, a lot of Xi's rule in many ways echoes what Mao did, and he sees any any identity and any opinion that's um, counter to the official narrative as a threat. And so that's why it's not just knife-wielding jihadists that they have a problem with. It is these tea shops, because that itself is seen as a threat to his moral and ideological control. Right, it's just blanket totalitarianism. Yeah, yeah, blanket totalitarianism mixed with this sort of um, pathological, pathological quest for ideological control. So it's not, it's not enough, at least in Xinjiang, it's not enough for someone to just not stir the pot at all. There's genuine efforts to try to remould them and re- reshape their mind into something that is is more palatable. Yeah, it's like Vanilla Sky, <laughs> you know? It's like, stop them before they do it, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, and you even hear this whole thing coming up and up again about preventive policing. And so, I mean, you don't have to be bet- detained because of anything, really. You can be detained for no reason. But once you do, you sort of get given this list of 70 crimes that you may have committed. And so, for example, some of those could be you attended a funeral at a not at an at an unofficial unofficial cemetery, or you or you sort of grew a beard, or you wore a hijab, or even stuff as obs- as obscure as you own a tent. And so you've got to pick off your crime, and then that's that's sort of how it's done. You you get given a list of potential things that you've done. You have got to pick three or four. And then that's how you're charged. Fucking hell. Why would owning a tent be a crime? I don't get that bit. Ah, uh, because a lot of the a lot of the terrorist cells sort of back when that was a thing in sort of the early two thousands to 
mid-2010s, they would sort of do their training camps in the middle of nowhere, so they'd have to bring a tent out to it. It's like a super tenuous link. So if, you, if you're a Cub Scout, you're fucked. Yeah, or if you're a Uyghur Cub Scout, you're fucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're Han, you can sort of do whatever you want. But that's 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 the thing. There's this. There's such a wide variety of crimes that anyone, every single person in Xinjiang would have committed, would be guilty of something. And so then they they use that sort of random application as a way to frighten the people, so that you know that you've done something that you can be sent to prison for, or that you can be arbitrarily detained for. And so you've just got to make sure that you stay on the good side of everyone so that so that a local government official doesn't decide to push put you in camp for for a, put you in a camp for something. Mm. It's like quiet horrors of authoritarianism, do you know what I mean? Just having to guard yourself constantly. Um what about the the militant group then? What happened to them? I, I haven't seen anything about them for a long time. Well, they haven't really been in China for a long time. <laughs> So I I think the vast majority of terrorist attacks or at least political violence that you saw in Xinjiang was just sort of that outbreak outburst of anger. Um I think it was I mean this is way before my time so I'm kind of sketchy on the details but I I believe that a lot of them fled to Afghanistan once um the Taliban took over and it was never a huge group of people it wasn't like it wasn't thousands or even tens of thousands. I think at one point there was maybe 600 in Afghanistan. Um, and since the Syrian civil war started, a lot of them have sort of gone to that. And I think the vast majority of them have been long-time members of the Uyghur diaspora in Turkey, rather than fleeing from China to Syria. There were Uyghurs in Turkey that fled to Syria. But now there's a pretty solid... I guess, foothold that a lot of Uyghur-majority um, militant groups have, at least in Idlib. So Jaisal Shukha, for example, on near um, between Idlib and Latakia, that is almost, that's almost exclusively controlled by um, the Turkestan Islamic Party, which is the sort of Syrian... the, the, evolve, the evolution of the East Turkestan Islamic Party. Um... And there was also, I think, a few thousand that joined ISIS in varying degrees, and I, I believe there's still a fair few in sort of Al-Hal camp in, in Rojava. But, yeah, I believe the majority of them were from the Turkish Uyghur diaspora. I don't think there's been a huge flow of terrorists in and out of China for, for decades now. Yeah, certainly, like, you're right, with, like, TIP, for example, like you just mentioned, they're certainly, I mean, less of them even consider themselves Uyghurs now, and they're more just, like, we're Turkmens, a lot of them, do you know what I mean? It's it's a, it's definitely flowing from Turkey. Yeah, yeah, and you also see that's where all the Central Asians sort of gravitate to as well, so there's a good number of Uzbek members there, there's a good member, of, there's a good number of Kyrgyz members there. It's not just weak. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I saw a thing recently where Trump was saying he's going to have this law or some kind of bill to protect the Uyghurs, and then I think he dropped it because, of course, there was some kind of trade deal with uh, China. What, what's all that about? So there's been a lot of pressure, I guess, since in the last year or so to do something about to do something about Xinjiang. So in many cases, that I guess the f- 
there's multiple tiers, I guess, of what the Western governments can do in response. The first tier, which is what a lot of them have done, is just condemn it, which useless doesn't help anyone. Then there's been a few countries that have sort of begun talking about enacting Magnitsky-style sanctions. So that's sanctions on individuals who are committing human rights abuses. Um, then there's the sort of more broad thing. So the most recent um, legisl- the most recent legislation that's gone through the US on sort of Uyghur human rights is um, it's a blanket ban of exports from Xinjiang because it's sort of... I think I think rightly they have the idea that um, any product made in Xinjiang is t- tainted with forced labour, which I think it is. Um, so that's sort of, I think, the latest effort that's gone through at least the House and the Senate. I don't think Trump's... I don't... Actually, I think Trump maybe... I've heard stuff about Trump signing it, but I don't know where it sits at the moment. But in the meantime, yeah, it's sort of just... I think government responses are lagging quite a bit on this. So there's a lot of talk about what they could do, but I haven't seen a lot of it put into practice yet. Mm, Yeah, it does feel like the world's like, that's bad, we strongly condemn it, next. Yeah, and everyone's kind of being distracted by other things this year. True, true. Um, I want to talk about your work a little bit. I think it's really essential in looking at Xinjiang and what's going on with the Uyghurs there. Um, Maybe you can just talk about it a bit more broadly, you know, how you got into it, what you're actually doing. Yeah, so I, um, a lot of what I do, at least at the moment, is, yeah, looking at satellite imagery of places that aren't the most transparent and trying to get a greater idea of what's happening on the ground. At the moment, that's Xinjiang, but sort of I started off fresh out of high school looking into Syria. I was did a lot of analysis of Syria, did a lot of sort of trying to look at satellite imagery and sort of pass from what different people were saying who controlled what territory. Um, but yeah, more broadly, once once the camp started being built, I sort of saw the fact that I had skills, at least in satellite analysis, that could hopefully reveal a lot of what was happening and that that's in a that's in a society where journalists any journalists that make it there get followed by multiple teams of 10 plus police that stop them from seeing anything or doing anything that they don't want that they aren't meant to be doing um so yeah it's basically just you can't hide from the sky you can't hide from satellites when they're drifting above your territory and that's, yeah, one of the very few ways that information can come out. Like, even even the diaspora, the, generally the diaspora communities is a big way that totalitarian, that information from totalitarian governments leak, leak out. But there's a widespread and probably mostly correct perception, in, China, in at least in Xinjiang, that any Uyghurs' communications are completely monitored. So there, there can't be, there's no, very little information comes out that way. So often Uyghurs, if they're calling an acquaintance from home that hasn't been detained, they'll ask about a detained family member, and they'll say, oh, they're studying, and then they'll ask about the weather as a code to see if they're alive or not. And, which is very grim, but, like, this is a level of totalitarian information control that's sort of unprecedented. So... It's it's a mixture of a strong government with a strong 
strong desire to let no information come out and people that are scared or detained. Um, so yeah, satellites are sort of, in many ways, the only way, the only, the only lens that remains looking into Xinjiang. And so I've sort of, in the last couple of years, I've tried to find as many different camps as I can, and I'm up to about 300 now. And a lot of that's just scrolling through satellite imagery back and forth, looking for, looking for a building that looks like it's a camp. And they sort of, after a while, you, you pick up what they distinctively look like. But beyond that, actually another neat thing that I've done, this feels a bit weird to be talking about quirky methods in this otherwise horrible conversation, but looking at night lights. So there's some satellites that basically just take a photo of the Earth at night to try to sort of gauge that. And because most of these camps popped up out of nowhere generally out of the desert or out of farmland. If you look at a nightlight map of Xinjiang in 2017, before the camps came, and you look at it now, you'll just see hundreds of new points pop up, which is just the, which in many cases are the camps. Um, so yeah, it's sort of trying to quantify, in a way, the, the totalitarianism and the human rights abuses in Xinjiang. Because you can hear a lot of the... I mean, we have, we've hardly even talked about surveillance or, like, physical restrictions to movement. But I've largely been trying to sort of quantify the macro-human rights abuses, whether that is the destruction of cemeteries, the destruction of mosques, um, even residential demolitions, which, when you look at most cities in Xinjiang, like, between a quarter and a half of their houses have just been knocked down in the last two years. It's kind of like what Israel does in Palestine. Do you know what I mean? To, to like, families that are even adjacent to, to militants or whatever. Yeah, it's it's that on a, it's that on a lot of steroids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you did mention the uh, the surveillance there. I mean, that's a good point. What What is the level? What's that like? I mean, I know that even for just normal citizens in China, the surveillance is through the roof. What's happening for the Uyghurs? So I think that surveillance is one of the large drivers towards that residential demolition that I just mentioned, because they consider sort of organic households as something that's difficult to surveil and difficult to control in. So they sort of build blocks and you'll have a police station on each corner of an intersect at each, at each intersection that any person walking past has to scan their ID, has to have their phone checked, has to have their voice or fingerprint or iris checked. And it's basically, in many cases, you'll hear reports of someone trying to walk 500 metres and needing to go through more than 10 of those sort of checkpoints. Um, but then there's the, there's the personal surveillance. So there's huge sort of apps that have been developed where just... I mentioned before sort of cadres go into your house, they record details about you, they record how how loyal that you seem. They try to chat with you privately to get you to rat on some neighbours. If, like, a neighbour has a Quran, you, you're meant to be telling that. And even school children have to... S I've heard a lot of reports of school children having to sign a piece of paper at each Ramadan that says, hey, if your parents, if any of your relatives, or if any of your friends fast during Ramadan, dob them in to us. Um, so there's that level, and that's all centrally controlled. So that information about everyone, and that's information that goes to 
when was the last, like, who you hung out with during a funeral to your family tree going generations back, that's sort of all accessible through a QR code that you've got to have, that by law you have to have up on your house. So a police officer can just walk past, scan your QR code, see your recent movement, see who you're, who you've been talking to, see where you've been, see what your beliefs are, at least what government cadres assess your beliefs to be, and if they pick up anything out of the ordinary, then you're in trouble. This is outrageous. It's, it's almost um, like sci-fi in its level of dystopia. Yeah, really puts Black Mirror to shame. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Um, what, what, how is, is China able to do this? Is, is, is it all their own doing or, they, or are they outsourcing this to other companies or what? There's got to be a few people involved here. Yeah, so a lot of it is sort of a massive investment. I mean, it's not, easy, it's not cheap to build those, build prisons for a million people. But yeah, a lot of it is also private corporations that are trying to sort of curry favour with China and often in many cases probably agree with it. So for example, Hikvision, which is a famous sort of security camera, security cam- camera manufacturer, they're deeply involved in that. So are all of the Chinese social media companies, so are all the Chinese big data companies. And they sort of all work together in a way that could only really exist in a centrally controlled communist party operatives in every, at every level of business level. But they all, yeah, the, the central government authorities, the provincial government authorities, all across China work together to sort of further this project. So do, so do private companies and even, in some cases, foreign companies. So... We released a report, I think, last week that looked at um, Thermo Fisher, which is a U.S. bio... I think it's a U.S. biomedical company. Thermo Fisher, which is um, yeah American technology and biotech company. They were instrumental in the building of genetic databases. So everyone has to have their, have their complete DNA on file. Wow, and how do they obtain that DNA? I mean, this is a sort of policy throughout China, not just Xinjiang, but they sort of just say that you've got to, they've got to prick your finger for a DNA sample and you can't really say no. So they have sort of, gov- they have police officers going around to every household and big collection drives where they just get DNA data. And what if you say no? Um, I mean, I can't really imagine that. I don't think, I mean, you're, you would, you're gone. Yeah, you'd be gone in Xinjiang. But I, I, I think most people sort of understand that they have no right to refuse any request from any government official at any point for anything. So I, I don't think there's many people saying no. Yeah, that's the thing. When authoritarianism is so embedded for so many generations and it gets into the culture, there is no, like, even the thought of saying, like, no, it's just outrageous. That's when, you know, it's it's really dangerous. It's almost impossible to stop it at that level, I think. Um, which, which brings me to think, like, what can be done to actually help the Uyghurs in Xinjiang? So I think a lot of China's long-term strategy is economic, in a way. It sort of wants to make... Xinjiang this industrial base for the rest of China. Because through a lot of the rest of China, sort of, if you're in primary and secondary industries, your wage is growing at a lower rate than GDP is growing. 
and a lot of workers throughout the rest of China are increasingly unhappy. There's a rising middle class and there's sort of less and less people that can do that, making shoes or um, growing cotton or um, spinning wool. And so there's less and less people in the rest of China that are happy to do that. And I think China's trying to make Xinjiang a major industry hub for that. So I think the response needs to, in many ways, come from industries to make that strategy unviable. And you're seeing more and more companies that are outright saying, we don't want to do any business with any company that's had any part of its supply chain in Xinjiang, and that's a move in the right direction. But it's, it's tricky in many ways because those industries are using the traditional methods of auditing that rely on government cooperation or rely on external auditors and rely on their first-tier supply companies to audit their suppliers. And that's not the case when it comes to forced labour in Xinjiang. So there needs to be, I guess, a whole shifting in norms of how, how businesses do their, do their ethical supplying in China, and a much greater focus on... On the situation, so in many cases, I remember last year, Muji, which is a Japanese clothing brand, it was advertising its Xinjiang cotton specifically, even though that's pretty implicitly forced labour produced. But I think when it comes to industries as a whole standing up and saying, look, what you're doing here doesn't match with our business business ethics and we're going to be very, I guess, hawk-eyed looking for forced labour especially Uyghur forced labour in our supply chains, that'll have a massive that'll have a massive impact on the on I guess the cost benefit analysis that China puts into its policies in Xinjiang. And if it can't make these million people that have been detained plus the additional three or four million people that they're trying to put into these forced labour positions, if it can't make them profitable then I think there's going to have to be a rethink of the strategy. And I don't know if I don't know if that'll necessarily end in it being better, because there is so much institutional racism and distrust of Uyghur people in the Chinese government that I can't imagine them going, these people aren't making money, so we'll let them go. Really being effective, but it will definitely it's it's the only real way that I can envision effectively and quickly combating the human rights abuses happening right now. Yeah, man. And I think as well, um, this is kind of removed from your point there with with like the big industries like clothing, but also social media industries, I believe, have been kind of colluding with the Chinese government. I think they need to stop that as well, because we need as much information as possible out there about the Uyghurs. You know what I'm saying? I think maybe Google or Facebook or something like that was involved in something. I think Google's actually been quite helpful. If you look at, um, I mean... If you look at satellite image, if you look at Google Earth over Xinjiang, there's a lot more satellite imagery of Xinjiang than there is of almost anywhere else in the world, and that's clearly someone in Google saying we need to where we need to buy more imagery of Xinjiang because this is what people are using to sort of find these camps. And the social media thing I think is tricky because the vast majority of social media in China is Chinese companies, and they don't really have any any means or any right to refuse a request from the Chinese government. So, yeah, there there is certainly more that can be done, but I think social media companies 
sort of need to focus more on, yeah, getting, I guess, get, getting the message out and making it clear within their business where their morals lie in regards to China, then, then they can do anything, I guess, practical in stopping, the, stopping what's happening. Yeah, I'm just looking at it now. This is what I was on about. Um, I knew I, I knew it's something. So China paid Facebook and Twitter to help spread anti-Muslim propaganda, and now like the both companies are like, oh, sorry, we'll no longer take money from state-controlled media. But it's like you know, <laughs> at one point they did. The damage is done, and it's out there. Yeah, and there's, I like you. You, you hear so many companies doing, taking the right step. I guess in uh, in. I can't think of the example that I'm thinking of, but I think Microsoft did something in response to Black Lives Matter. And I'm like, that's that's great, but why aren't you being proactive in the human rights abuses in Xinjiang? Like, it's it, in many ways, it's sort of... Maybe it's just a bit cynical, but it seems as though there's, in many cases, that all of these social justice initiatives are just in response to the market. <laughs> Oh, I don't think it's cynical at all. I agree. I think that they don't actually care. It's just what's trendy and what will basically make them look like they're fitting in with what's trendy at the moment, which is a a horrific but realistic way that these companies, I think, look at it anyway. Um, Nathan, is there anything else you want to say uh, before we wrap this up? Anything you think we maybe missed? No, I think that's pretty good. Yeah, man, I think it's very detailed. Um, and actually, there's one thing I wanted to say before we go. So we can't ignore the fact that there's a small but very active group of people on the internet, almost all on the internet, of what you know, Popular Front is always against. We call them tankies, which is hardline authoritarian communists. Now, we don't hate communists. I don't care if you're a communist, whatever. Cool, fine. I hate you if you're like a Stalinist, if you're defending authoritarianism, which a lot of these tankies do. Now... Most of them are just irrelevant, they're useless, they're like trash people, but there are some that are very young, they're not really thought about what they're doing, they've just got an internet ideology without reading the proper books or speaking to the people. What would you say to those people, the people that can be brought around to real realistic situations in Xinjiang, rather than these idiots that are just saying like, oh no, it's it's all ISIS and Jihad, that's what China's doing, they have to do it. I mean, what would you say to them, to the people that perhaps are believing the bullshit, but can be brought around? I think the most important thing to look at is realise that there's more nuance in the world than just pro-US, anti-US spectrum. And I think that's a lot of where those tankies sort of go off the deep end, where they don't view anyone, any oppressed person as having agency outside of sort of that spectrum of pro-US, anti-US. I think... In many ways, when it comes to the sort of far left, I think discourse on um, discourse on foreign policy is pretty dead. You can't say anything about Syria, for example, without someone standing up and talking about how Syrian civilians gassed themselves in Assad's right in his mass murder of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, so I think maybe, maybe if you economically agree in com- with communism, maybe just take stock and realise that a lot of the places where people have conversations about it in that part of the far left are toxic and pretty pretty nonsense on foreign policy and maybe, realize, maybe come to the realisation that you need to look elsewhere for your foreign policy perspectives. I think in, in, China, it's, in China it's the same way. No one like Hong Kong, the Hong Kong protests, for example, I don't think a lot of these tankies can really 
understand Hong Kong in any spe- in it, through any perspective that isn't just pro-US, anti-US. And because they're against China, which is against the US, then we need to be against them. Yeah, it, it's, it's absolutely outrageous that you would base something as complicated and intricate as war and conflict and geopolitics on what side am I on in the West. It's so funny to me that someone will be like well they like america so therefore i hate them it's, it's just like it's yeah. ridiculous <laughs> or they don't like america and therefore i like, I them, I like yeah. them yeah or even the other way you get it on the right wing as well they go the other way it's just like you know a lot of right wingers will be like uyghurs are muslim don't like them <laughs> it's just like idiots but no i agree it's like just fucking look at the situation based on its merits of what's going on not which fucking side you're on and also if anyone thinks that the ccp is communist Jesus, go back and read the fucking Das Capital or whatever the fuck it is you're into because they are not a communist state. That is a hyper-capitalist state um, just with the most deepest authorian, authoritarian tendencies, as people say. But uh, yeah, man, anyway, I can't even be bothered to talk about that fucking bullshit. If there's one thing that I could sort of grab every tanky by the shoulders and shake them and yell at them, it would be countries that aren't the West can be imperialist too. <laughs> Well, yeah, like, remember when Russia went into Afghanistan? <laughs> like, like, oh, that's okay. <laughs> like, no, it's not. Like, but, uh, yeah, I mean, not the, like, not the saying, like, oh, America's good or China's bad. Like, fuck them all for me. Fuck all the states, whatever. But that's just not how it works. It doesn't work on this place is always evil and this place is always good. It's, it's just not the real world. If you think like that, grow up. Seriously, grow up. Um, we'll get a lot of hate from this, which is good, because let them do it. <laughs> I mean, a lot of them cut their teeth on Syria, just like me, so I've, I've dealt with them for years. Um, <laughs> there's one thing that I would say that if you are sort of interested in, if you are, I guess, more communist-leaning and interested in China, rather than going to the grey zone and listening to those absolute losers, there's a Chinese-based, there's a Chinese collective called Chuang, C-H-U-A-N-G, and they put out journals quite regularly that sort of look at China's economic history and the situation on the ground through this really sort of informed a lot by communist ideology. And I think, I don't agree with them 100%, but everything that they write is worth worth reading. That's the thing. That is exactly. Like I, I personally, I'm not a communist. I have communist friends. Like the idea, ideology of communism just isn't for me. In terms of, I think it always drifts into like a statist ideology. But that doesn't matter. That's who cares. Like it's like you can have your ideas. You don't need to then completely digest the hardest, most extreme version of it, which is this kind of tankyism. Like you don't have to be an authoritarian to be a communist. Like it's it's ridiculous. But uh, anyway, let's stop talking about this boring politics shit, man. Um, now. Nathan, where can people find your work and uh, keep keep in touch with you and follow what you're doing? Um, so probably the place where I talk shit the most is um, Twitter. So my Twitter is the letter N, the letter R, the letter G, 8000. N-R-G-8000. Yep, yep. So follow me there if you want to hear me yell more stuff. Um, and I also, a lot of the Xinjiang work that I'm doing right now, I'm publishing through a think tank in Australia called the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And so in the next month or so, we've got a big project coming out that looks at all of these detention camps in Xinjiang and looks at all, looks at all of the um, cultural destruction and um, residential demolition at the moment happening in Xinjiang. So keep an eye out for that. And what's that website? 
it doesn't have a website yet. <laughs> okay, no worries. <laughs> because yeah, we ha- we're still a bit off launching it, but yeah, it'll we'll, we'll make we'll, I'll push it when it comes out. Excellent. Thank you very much, Nathan. That was brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, good to finally chat. Yeah, man. telling us about the brutal oppression from the CCP against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang in China. Um, you'll have to excuse me, I've just had a fill-in and my mouth is fucked. It's like, look like I've been boxed in the mouth or something, Quasimodo. Um, yeah, so if you like what we're doing, please, as always, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front for just five dollars a month you get access to the bonus episodes minimum of two a month i think this month there's been four i think um so yeah there's loads of extra content waiting for you there also uh for the higher tiers you get access to the um patreon community discord which is absolutely fascinating really good place to be um what else discounts on merchandise you get uh podcast episodes come out for you for patreons before everybody else um before it goes on the main podcast you see what i mean um and also any documentary stuff that we do will go out there first uh so yeah patreon.com slash popular front this is completely independent 100 grassroots uh the more we do on the patreon the more we do a popular front basically all of this is growing fast and it's good to see so thank you very much uh the episode is sponsored by oracle coffee shop in portland oregon usa they're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products see them at 3875 southwest Bond Avenue 97239. Tell them Popular Front sent you. Uh, the episode is also sponsored by another coffee shop here, Grind Core House. They're a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA. There's one in South, one in West. Check them out on social media at Grind Core House. Tell them Popular Front sent you. You might get a discount on your coffee, that sort of thing. Um, if you want to keep up to date with Popular Front, follow us on Twitter at Popular Front CO. YouTube is youtube.com slash Popular Front. We will have the um, Seattle protest doc will go out soon. I know that uh, Max uh, and Johnny are working on that. Two lads doing the doc there, doing a great job. Thank you very much. Uh, go to instagram.com slash popular.front for the Instagram, obviously. <laughs> Um and yeah the website popularfront.co to be honest if someone says oh what is popular front best thing to do probably is just redirect them to the website www.popularfront.co as I said in the start we've got a uh, magazine coming or a zine I guess you could say that is uh, is doing mad numbers on the pre-orders so make sure you get yours uh, it comes out uh, next month it will be shipping in the middle of July go to popularfront.shop that is the website you can see the zine there uh, thanks very much to uh, Connell Kearney for putting that together for his top lad um, what else what else uh, yeah basically thank you very much to sorry my mouth is fucked man i just had this filling like an hour ago killing my mouth's all numb um thank you very much to the higher tier patreons uh they are ethan reese i think that is or ethan reyes let me know if i said that wrong mate ethan reyes i think fitz madrid joe watt chandler malim alex northrop ed cool johnny lafleur clayton taylor 
Hugo Newski, Maxwell Burke, B-I-E-N-A-6, yep, Anthony Kabarak, Dong Wayne, Liam Williams, Fragile Feeling, Chris Cusimano, Sebastian from the Discord, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Chris Davis, D.R., Trey Nance, Charlie, Olin Thorne, Amy Rupert, Rubicom, Prashant Singh, Azad, Frank Austin, Ennis, Amelia Mee, I think right, or is it Amelia May? Amelia Mee, yep. Christina Rivetti, Josh, Moody Al Rashid, Bill Wilson, Emily Emiliano, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Ari from the Discord, Young Wasabi, Sarushe Hawazi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, Skartoon Music, Stephen Davila, Patrick Bronte, Dan Donham, Fletcher T- Chad Walker, Diana Gorvanek, Q-Ball, uh, Lawrence Abrams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, Maurice Zumbwall, Daniel Shearer and Joe Ann Stocker. Thank you all very much for your support. Keeps this going. I don't I know it. Um, without you lot, honestly, this thing would fall on its fucking ass. Um, you might have seen in the Discord the other day, you know, we've been getting some offers. Uh, some investors have been offering, but we told them, fuck off, no, because we're not having money from corporate bullshit you know like obviously if there's investors and it's right cool we'll go but now nah, we're not having no bollocks this must remain independent so thank you very much supports at patreon.com slash popular front music in this episode the intro was by home and the outro was by sam black check his music out at samblackpf.com <laughs>